Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. In the back of my yearbook from high school, there are notes from my friends about seeing my wind turbines and solar panels someday. And I had never even seen a wind turbine in person at that point, but I had wholly committed myself to the renewable energy industry and was ready to go in that direction. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back. Welcome back to Suncast. And thank you for investing your most precious resource here with me today. And that is your time. Today's entrepreneur, Kristen Graff, is executive director of the nonprofit Women of Renewable Industries and Sustainable Energy, or RISE, as it's better known. For a decade, she has championed, mentored, and modeled the female executives RISE in engineering and renewable energies business. You'll find more than 175 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories over at www.mysuncast.com. And while you're there, do check out the Suncast Tribe and subscribe to the newsletter so you don't miss a single episode or announcement. For now, let's get ready for another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, today is a very special day in the history of Suncast. I have the fabulous honor of interviewing an entrepreneur who has been giving direction and voice to those who would want to enter into this industry and have up till now by far been a minority, that being the women in our business. You can walk around any trade show or uh, just about any office and recognize that we still got a long way to go in uh, the solar and clean energy business to increase our diversity uh, on many matrices, but not the least of which is more women. I'm thrilled that there are more women in leadership lately, uh, for better or worse, sometimes to get uh, when that happens, it gets called out. But today's executive and entrepreneur is the executive director of Rise, Kristen Graff is, as I mentioned, Executive Director of the Women of Renewable Industries and Sustainable Energy, a national nonprofit that has been growing its presence across the renewable energy economy with over 30 chapters and a broad purpose, which is to change our energy future through the actions of, that's right, women. So Kristen's going to explain today exactly how RISE does that. We're going to talk, as you might have guessed, about diversity in the workplace. If you listened to the episode with our good mutual friend, Tara Doyle, then you'll remember I have given myself a personal challenge for Suncast to increase diversity in Suncast. Uh, We continue that here today with Kristen Graff. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You're originally from Pittsburgh. You know, I was just talking to Josh Beck about Pittsburgh and holy smokes, what a, a rebirth this city has got going on over there. 
Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing city. I think it's always been in a bit of a cycle of renaissance in general, but I talked to other folks, I call it a hidden gem because it's a really amazing city that I think if you've never been there or had a chance to interact around Pittsburgh, people often still think of it as sort of a really dirty, smoggy steel town place. And, you know, the steel industry is definitely a huge part of the the culture and his, history of Pittsburgh, but um, there's so much going on there all the time. Um, it's really exciting from the amazing green buildings, including the first ever LEED certified convention center to like all the, you know, green industry stuff going on around the city. It's, it's pretty incredible. Well, Kristen, you have been not only involved in, but drawn to clean energy for the better part of, if not entirety of your professional career. You have a cultural upbringing, uh, that being Pittsburgh, that ties you, <laughs> that ties you to uh, sort of the industrial revolution. And, and very much, as we were mentioning, there's a pivot happening uh, in your hometown and in your new hometown of Brooklyn that mm-hmm. puts you at the vanguard of all things sort of transition in, in this fight that we're in. I would love to hear at what point you really discovered that clean energy was this thing that you, uh, that, that became real for you and how you figured out this is where you wanted to spend your career. It started at uh, a pretty early age for me. And I was talking to someone else the other day trying to, as you brought up Pittsburgh, I'm, I still am kind of trying to go back and remember how much of it was because we were in Pittsburgh. If we had more conversations about sort of clean air and the environment in general, you know, I was always very much into the outdoors and being in the outdoors. At a young age, my sister introduced me to, you know, one of those books about 50 things kids can do to save the earth. And, you know, we would run around our house and put bottles in the water tank to save water and track the electric meter and things like that. But I also had some amazing teachers in middle school and high school who noticed the math and science nerd in me. uh, And I think called that out and, and helped me learn about the potential for careers that tied my love of math and science to doing good around the environment. And so I got really excited about the potential to be involved in innovative technology and things that were making the air cleaner and you know, eventually would be the things that are addressing climate change as a whole. So um, as a pretty young kid, I had an amazing um, chemistry teacher in high school who every at the start of class every day, he would spend the first five or 10 minutes talking about some really cool technology thing. And it was always something different and not always chemistry related specifically, but sort of hinging on it. And somewhere in the mix of those topics, I started to learn about renewable energy and just peaked so much. And so I was telling you this before, but in the back of my yearbook from high school, there are notes from my friends about seeing my wind turbines and solar panels someday. And I had never even seen a wind turbine in person at that point, but I had been, I had sort of wholly committed myself to the renewable energy industry and, and was ready to go in that direction. So uh, everybody knew it. <laughs> yeah. And so you threw yourself into an undergraduate engineering education at Cornell, no less. I wanted to be in the place where the technology was happening and the solutions were being built and created and designed. And I really knew nothing about what I was getting myself into other than I broadly was excited about renewable energy and saving the world or something like that through it and using technology to do that. And 
people often ask me how I ended up where I am now. And the roots of it are really in my college and undergrad experience where two major things. One was, I think I went in with this vision of technology as the saving thing. Like I was going to design some amazing new piece of technology that was going to change why I didn't see wind turbines everywhere, why there weren't solar panels on every roof. It was clearly a technology problem to my high school mind. And I think what I realized in college was, you know, there's always tons of work to be done to improve the technology, but it became really clear to me pretty early on that it still wasn't matching up. Like if the technology that I was seeing, I was recognizing how far along and how well advanced the technology was. And it just didn't seem commensurate with how much we were built. We should be building a lot more given how good it was. And so I just became really fascinated with markets and economics and policy and public perceptions. Like really, why aren't we building this? Because the technology is there and yet we're still not building it as much as we could or should. And so I became really interested in what else was behind that. And so that was sort of what what led me on to go to the Union of Concerned Scientists and work on the policy side for a while before coming to RISE. But the other piece of my undergrad experience was that at the time, there were only a couple of women in my freshman calculus class. We were maybe at 20% women across the entire engineering school at that time. And it it just really hadn't occurred to me leaving high school. You know, there were a ton of women in my calculus class in high school, and there were tons of women in my science classes. And it it just did not... I knew the history of not many women in engineering, but it really did not occur to me that it would drop off as much as it did. Thankfully, over the time since my days long ago as an undergrad engineer, things have started changing a lot. And, and in fact, Cornell has uh, 50% women in their engineering program now, which is a huge shift through some great intentional work that they've done. Uh, but that doesn't mean we still have a long way to go. So anyway, I became really interested, engaged, passionate with with why we don't have as many women in technology as we should. And, and that was always sort of a side passion and until the time when I had the chance to come to Rise. You know, you hailed from Pennsylvania. Arguably, Pennsylvania has a bunch of great engineering schools, namely Carnegie Mellon. Pittsburgh has uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Penn State, obviously, University Park have a few... Uh, you got Drexel and mm-hmm. Villanova and holy smokes, like Bucknell, Bucknell. Yeah, those <laughs> right? Like there's so many good, even mechanical engineering degrees in particular, but like, yeah. what drew you to Cornell in New York? You know, a first piece, honestly, is that I wanted to get out of Pittsburgh. You know, I was just as much as I love Pittsburgh and will convince pretty much anybody to go live there because I think it's such an amazing city. Um, I was one of those high school kids that was like, I need to get away from home. I need to go (laughs) someplace different. And arguably, I didn't end up going that far away or any place that different. But, you know, I was looking to get somewhere else. But in particular, the Cornell program at the time was one I actually went into agricultural and biological engineering program but in part because it was a place that I could study renewable energy. I could study sort of environmental engineering, but not in the sense when you're, you know, in high school and you're looking at engineering programs and you're like, I want to do something for the environment. They all tell you environmental engineering. But the reality is environmental engineering is very tied up with civil engineering and there's incredibly good and important work to be done there. But a lot of it is like, you know, managing wastewater and doing sewage treatment and things like that. You don't always go into civil and environmental to become a renewable energy person. 
So I was really trying to find out where the renewable energy pockets. Um, and one of them for me was in this, this program at Cornell in their Ag and Bioengineering program. Well, you know, you mentioned that you really became interested through your experience in college with the driving force behind the policy that would sustain or grow our industry rather than just the technology that, would, that our industry would leverage. I think that sort of explains how and why you got into Union of Concerned Scientists. For those who may be interested, how did you go from an undergrad engineering degree into a policy uh, career? In particular, what attracted you to Union of Concerned Scientists? And you were the program coordinator for clean energy. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I was looking for places that, as I said, sort of combined this mix of my interests of, you know, I was coming in with a skill set, very engineering focused, uh, but at the same time, really interested in diving in on some of the other puzzles and pieces. And so the role at UCS, the Union of Concerned Scientists, was a an opportunity to do more of the sort of analytical side of policy, I would say. And, and honestly, I went in the door as a administrative type of role almost, and that um, then led to being able to do more and more work on sort of the policy analysis side. So the Union of Concerned Scientists has a whole team in Washington, D.C. doing work directly related to federal policy, but then they do a lot of state work all over the country and they have their headquarters are in the Boston area, which is where I was, and um, working with the clean energy team there on sort of some of the analysis behind the policy work that's going on. So how can you look at a piece of legislation and say, what are the implications for this in terms of, you know, we were looking at renewable energy portfolio standards and saying, or renewable electricity standards saying, okay, if they change this language around biomass, you know, how does that change sustainability supply curves here? Or if this language changes on wind energy, you know, what does that mean for this offshore wind project on Cape Cod, you know, a whole mix of things. Like, how does it play out state by state? How does it play out across the country? What does it mean for electricity prices across the country? And then how can we talk about that with the broader public who's trying to engage and cares a lot about renewable energy, but doesn't necessarily know what it means for their everyday life and, and what are those opportunities? So there were a few things that, that drew me there. One, you know, obviously being named the Union of Concerned Scientists, I knew I'd have some sort of connection to nerdy, passionate people that care about math and science and that they would be there. And in fact, that was the case. You know, I was really drawn there by the people I met in the interview process and the folks that I think it's just an amazing community of people that are so passionate about the work, are totally nerdy, wonky, love the science, but also, you know, love being able to be folks that are sort of that trusted messenger who can talk about it in the broader world as well. And then are just super grounded and, and realistic about what they're doing. So it was an amazing place to be. Tell me about your first exposure to the women of wind industry. So I was working for the Union of Concerned Scientists and I went back to Pittsburgh for a conference. The uh, American Wind Energy Association, OWEA, was hosting their annual wind power conference in Pittsburgh. And I went back and was doing, you know, the regular conference 
networking and connecting with folks. And actually a, a good friend of mine from college who was in the same program and active in the wind industry showed up and she was there doing some different work. And she found me at one point on the exhibit hall floor and said, oh, you have to come with me. I'm going to this lunch. It's incredible. It's this group. They're called Women of Wind Energy. And it's you know a lunch for women in the industry. And I was like, what? That sounds amazing. I love it. So... I went with her to lunch. That was my first exposure to uh, what was at the time Women of Wind Energy. At the time, they were all volunteer-run, housed within another nonprofit called Windistry, um, with some staff support out of Windistry. And it was just kind of... It was there. That was 2006. They had been started as an organization in 2005. And then uh, 2006, I got to go meet them and meet all sorts of amazing folks at lunch. Realized it was a really cool organization that I wanted to connect with and be engaged with. And then years later, that's the story. Wowie uh, was looking for an executive director and I had the chance to come get started here. And now we have rebranded. So Wowie has become Rise. Lauren Glickman, who handles not only Rise, but has uh, worked for for SEPA and a number of other organizations uh, on social media and digital media strategy. And she connected us and insisted that we meet last SPI on the show floor. Super grateful for you, Lauren. Thank you for making this connection. You guys have been working a lot on raising overall, elevating the level of engagement and presence and awareness of Rise and its rebranding since 2017. One of the things that a lot of people will recognize perhaps the most are these Rise Breakfasts. Tell me about the the genesis of the Rise Breakfast, and maybe you can, in so doing, explain a bit about how Rise is set up with the local clubs. One of the things that was, I would say, frustrating for me that you guys perhaps could work on is um, it's hard to actually find a Rise on LinkedIn to like at mention because <laughs> the chapters, yeah. the chapters do such a good job. They're so strong. It, <laughs> yeah. In the end, you have to uh, spell it out the whole way to get the national one because the others all come up. Yeah. So, so yeah. help me un- like unpack a bit what, what Rise does. And then I want to ask you some questions about your candidacy for Rise. So Rise as a whole, we're you know a national nonprofit focused on recruiting more women into the renewable energy space. And then beyond recruitment, we want to retain and advance all of the amazing women that are already in the space. And then we work on leveraging the voices of all of those incredible women and the amazing men that are around our network to talk more about both the importance of the diversity of our workforce, but also the value of renewable energy as a whole. And so that happens in a lot of different sub programming, right? On the recruitment side, we do everything from connecting with folks that are working on K through 12 curriculum and getting our chapters connected to do outreach in local schools. We run a fellowship program to bring students and recent grads to some of the annual trade shows like SPI and OEA's Wind Power Conference. And then we do job boards and support companies and recruitment, things like that. In the retention and advancement, space, which is such an important chunk of our work. We're focused both on working with individual women um, through programs like our webinar program, or we have a mentoring program that's both sort of a traditional one-on-one program, but also the really exciting part for us is the peer group program, which puts women into circles of four to eight to go through a structured curriculum altogether. We also host an in-person leadership forum that touches on topics of both professional development and industry trends to get 
women all together in one room working on that as a whole. For us, the other side of retention and advancement is not just working with individual women to further their own careers, but really digging in with companies that are willing to do the work of sort of that internal reflection, thinking about their corporate culture, their policy? What are the things that they are doing from an institutional and a structural space that are having implications for the way we as an industry are retaining and advancing women in the sector? Beyond that, the sort of leveraging of voices is how can we support the industry and getting more women out and being more vocal? How do we get more women speaking at industry conferences? How do we get more women speaking in public? How do we get more women onto boards of companies? How do we get more women at all levels? I mean, I've talked a little bit about with you, I think in the past about, you know, part of my willingness to leave the policy world and move to a place like Rise was that I was getting really frustrated looking at climate policy going through and seeing so few women in the federal energy committees, so few women at the public utility commissions. You know, there need to be more diverse voices in all of these conversations. And there was a really important opportunity, I think, for me and for RISE as an entire organization to be doing this work that I think is so key and critical to the success of the industry as a whole. So that's sort of how we approach it. And and as you said, we have chapters all over the country that are doing, and in Canada, that are doing the work at the local level and in addition to our national programming. You know, the solar industry is increasingly competitive. How are you differentiating yourself and your company to close more sales? Our friends over at Aurora Solar, you know, the NREL validated solar sales and design tool that I've been mentioning lately, well, they've conducted over a year of research into understanding precisely what makes a solar sales proposal succeed. And they've agreed to share their insights with Suncast listeners in a free ebook. It's called The Solar Sales Playbook for Proposals That Close. You can go to mysuncast.com forward slash Aurora to download this playbook for free. And if we've done our job right, you should also see the link in the description for this episode in your podcast player. Check it out. And thanks to Aurora for this amazing free resource. Hey, one more quick thing. If you've already listened to episode 175, then you know the cat's out of the bag. I am excited to be collaborating with North American Smart Energy Week to bring you a unique experience, the Podcast Lounge. I'd love to get your input on exactly how this program develops, but you'll have to act fast as there will only be taking submissions and nominations through August 31st. You'll find more details in the events section of the homepage over at mysuncast.com. All right, back to this week's episode. Your actual candidacy for Rise, for me, is a very fascinating story. It wasn't as though you sort of had this desire to rise in the, in the ranks of nonprofit, but you did have a desire, obviously, with, within the University of the Union of Concerned Scientists to make an impact you are working on policy, but not in the Beltway. You're watching policy move forward, but feeling a little bit distant from it. Can you frame for me what was happening at the time politically when you sort of realized that this thing that RISE was an option? And then how were you approached about the RISE candidacy? And then how did you make your decision? 
So I came to Rise at, at the time it was Wowie, Women of Energy, and I took on the executive director role at the end of 2009. So those that were sort of following the policy world in the 2008-2009 timeframe uh, know that that was when we were in the depths of the weeds on climate policy. And, uh, you know, it felt like we had this perfect lineup uh, and it seemed like we were really just so incredibly close to getting incredibly strong federal climate legislation. And some of us in the in the area called it death by 10,000 cuts, right? The way we watched that policy get shredded through a variety of different pieces of the process. And I think that was incredibly frustrating for me, even more so for others that I know were even deeper into the weeds of it. But I think for me, it, it offered up a moment of, of sort of really deep internal reflection. There were also, you know, some organizational changes going on at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And it would be clear I was going to make some choices around my career as a whole. And I, you know, was spending a lot of time thinking about I mentioned it before, but you know that there weren't many women in these discussions, in these conversations about climate policy, about energy policy. It became really clear to me that that was a critical piece of changing the dynamic and changing the way those conversations go forward. And if we're really going to get things moving, we need more women involved. And I think I have so much appreciation and respect for my colleagues that are in the weeds on the policy world in general, because it's such an important part of how we move forward. But I also had this recognition of what a long, hard haul it is to be in that space. And for me, coming from my engineering and technology background, I really wanted an opportunity to get back closer to industry itself, where people were putting some steel in the ground, generating actual renewable energy electrons in some way, so I could sort of feel some of that momentum of the sector. And so it was around then that the job description for the executive director of Wowie came across my desk. I had been involved, as I said, with the uh, organization. I went to the luncheon in 2006 and I had um, been on the listserv and involved in the Boston chapter. So I got that job description and I spent a lot of time sitting with it, looking through sort of bullet by bullet, which is something we know women tend to do, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, I try to tell them not to do it so much anymore, but that kind of going bullet by bullet saying, I don't know, can I really do this? Should I be an executive director? And actually talking to a lot of my friends about it. And a few of them gave me some great feedback, one being like, uh, every time you talk about this, your eyes light up and you, I think this is really important. And the other, my sister was the one who said, you know, that there's this book called What Color Is Your Parachute? That's a career uh, sort of decision-making book. And she's like, I'm pretty sure if you took every test in that book, this is the job that would come out the other side. I don't understand why you're hesitating. (laughs) What is going on here? Uh, So I took that as many of those conversations to finally get my hat in the ring a little late in the game, but I, I pulled it out nonetheless. And I think it's a really important piece. And I think the other thing that I like to talk about in that process is the way you sort of cultivate the relationships around you and ask people to help you get somewhere. I had a colleague who I knew through my work at UCS, and he was going to be going to a meeting where I knew two of the women that were actively involved in the organization and 
who were probably involved in the hiring, I knew he was going to be at a meeting with them. And I, you know, kind of pulled him aside and said, you have to tell them that they should interview me. I was like, I'll do the rest. If you can get me this interview, I need you to open the door. And he was like, oh my God, that's the perfect job for you. And he did it. He went in in that meeting uh, to his credit and said, if you don't give her an interview, you're out of your mind. And they called me shortly after that. And I got an interview. You really started to leverage the experts in your sphere of influence that you knew also could apply influence to the decision makers. And that's something that I enforce uh, or reinforce in conversations with my coaching clients and with folks that I'm trying to help transition into the clean energy business or you know, figure out what they're doing with their transition through from college into the business uh, is that it really is important to survey. And this is not a selfish thing because in this case, it sounds like he was more than willing to do this. You had established yourself as a credible authority and you waited for the right time to call on that social capital, right? Yeah. You have to do that relationship building work and come at it with integrity all throughout your life on a regular basis. It's not in a purely utilitarian way. It's in a, like, I'm here. I love working with you. You're an incredible person. We do great work together. And then in the end, when you need it, it's incredible to have people that are willing to go to bat for you. And I don't think we always, especially as women, we're not always willing to ask for people to go to bat for us in the same way that we're willing to go to bat for other people. And I think we need to ask for that more often and recognize that people are out there that want to go to bat for you. What do you think is the hardest thing or maybe the most unexpected bit about Rise that you've encountered? You know, if you had asked me when I was coming in, if I was going to stay here for 10 years, I'm not sure if I would have envisioned that 100%. I think um, what's been amazing about it, I don't know if it's the hardest thing, what's been phenomenal about it is how much it's always changing and growing and presenting new and different challenges. So I think, you know, for me, it has not been a static decade at all. And so that sort of energy and excitement in the change and, and in the way we can, can see things shifting um, is pretty exciting. I think, you know, in the beginning, it was a, a very different conversation than it is now. And to me, that's what's you know, it's hard when things move slowly, but it's also phenomenal when you get to see them move and shift and change and, and being able to be a part of the conversation about changing perspectives on the importance of the diversity of the workforce is really an incredible thing to be, to be involved in because I do think it's so critical for the success of the sector. I imagine that you could deliver like a plethora of stats, but what's the meta conversation that we should be having around diversity you know, what do you see as the trend? Where are people missing the mark on what we should be talking about related to diversity or women in the workforce? The stats have been accumulating over over the years. So there are a ton of organizations out there. Um, some of them are major research or organizations like, you know, McKinsey and Deloitte and Credit Suisse and folks that are doing research on the actual financial performance impacts of diversity and uh, recognizing that companies with 
you know, Catalyst does work on companies with more women on their board of directors and that they, uh, companies with three or more women on their board of directors consistently outperform uh, companies with no women on their board of directors from uh, return on sales, return on invested capital and return on equity sort of numbers. And there are similar sorts of studies that look at financial performance across entire teams from both a gender diversity perspective, but also a racial diversity perspective. So it makes business sense. You know, there's also some fascinating data from MIT has a program called the Center for Collective Intelligence, which has been looking at sort of group decision making born out of, you know, the way that we use the internet and sort of collective information uh, to find answers and crowdsource things and they want to know what's working. And so they've started studying how groups make decisions and to try and better understand if crowdsourcing can work or not. And and the three things that they've been able to find so far that correlate to better decision-making in a group are... The first one is average uh, social perceptiveness, which is how well the members of the group read each other's nonverbal cues. Um, the second is average social participation. So when the group is really dominated by one person who talks all the time, they don't do as well as a group that gets a chance to hear from everybody in the rest of the group get sort of a more equal participation time. And then the last one is the number of women in the group. And I think, you know, I'd love to say it's because women are just phenomenal business decision makers all the time. But I, I think the reality is it's because women, at least in the US, we train girls from a really young age in those other two things of watching nonverbal cues and managing relationships and making sure everybody's voice is heard. In general, women bring that skill set to the workplace and into group decision making more often. And so one, I think we need to do a better job of training those skills into our young boys. But then I also think we need to really focus on getting more women into the workforce. And I think, you know, you asked about where we're missing the mark. And I think one, obviously, we're missing the mark because the numbers just aren't there yet. You know, we're still hovering around 20 to 30% women around the entire workforce. That's not sufficient. It's significantly lower when you look at, you know, women as PV installers, women on the manufacturing floor, women that are wind turbine technicians. Those numbers are much, much lower, maybe five, maybe 10% if we're really lucky. Before we keep going, is that the entire workforce in renewables or or generally? In renewables. Okay, got it. The workforce globally is, you know, is close to 50%. It hovers on either side of 50%. You know, and then and also the other side though too is really low when you look at the C suite, the boards, the executive women, the energy sector in general has one of the lower percentages in terms of number of women on boards in the in, in the energy space as a whole. So we are not meeting the numbers, I think. And then I talk about it being really exciting because it's I've, I've seen the conversation start to shift in a way that we weren't there 10 years ago. And I would call it maybe a little bit patronizing when I got started. A lot of sort of pat you on the head. That's nice. Go do that thing over there on the other side with the women and we'll stay here and do you know, the important business in this room. And what I've seen change is the number of people and companies and CEOs that are coming forward and saying, oh my gosh, I get it now. Like these numbers are so clear. It is so important for us to have a more diverse workforce. What are we supposed to do? How do we get there? We're not, you know, like no women are applying for our jobs or, you know, other things. It's, you know, so the conversation has at least 
really shifted. But I don't, I think we're still missing sort of the depth of work that we need to do to really change how we diversify our workforce, right? It's, there are a lot of easy early steps and important pieces that people can and should be doing and companies can and should be doing. And, and that's a really important place to start. But there's like some really deep critical work that has to happen too. And, and I'm not sure that we're there yet. I don't know if it was released by City. But you had an executive from City at the breakfast who referenced it and basically said that this study came out and a whole lot of companies were forced to start thinking about the number of women on their boards and, and in the C-suite, et cetera. What was that study specifically that she was referring to? We were generally talking about ESG goals in general. Um, so investors that are starting to spend a lot more time looking at environmental, social, and governance metrics around companies because we're having a recognition both that investors are more and more engaging in sort of a level setting of the values of where they're placing their money and caring about how that ties into the company. They're not just investing purely for return. They're investing and caring about what their money is doing while it's invested. Um, So they're tracking these different metrics. But there's also a growing recognition in the way I was just talking about in terms of financial performance when you have a more diverse team. There's growing understanding that by investing in companies that are taking this work seriously and really looking at having more diverse teams on their board, on their executive team throughout their company, you're increasing the probability of better returns and better financial performance for your invested dollars. And so that work is, you know, that's sort of a big piece of what companies are starting to face. It's not only sort of pressure from their own employees and their inside the company to do their work in a way that creates a community where those companies want to or where those employees want to stay but it's pressure external pressure from their shareholders from their various stakeholders with this holistic recognition that more diverse teams are better for that business as a whole and so that's you know sort of our sense of the success of the renewable energy industry hinging on making sure we have a diverse workforce comes back to how do we help perpetuate that diverse workforce and how can we support companies in doing that work of diving in on all of these different pieces, whether it's you know gathering more data of their own internally or understanding the data of organizations like the Solar Foundation who have done some great work diving in not only on gender and racial demographics, but also the intersection of, you know, what does it look like for women of color in the renewable energy space, which is, you know, that data is much harder to come by and yet so critical to how we understand and can make decisions with an entire company in mind. Well, I'm glad you made it so easy, actually, for me to ask the next question, because one of the things that I think is unclear for folks who sort of peripherally are involved, and especially, you know, let's say at men who want to support and understand RISE, but um, maybe even don't don't even feel like they are invited to the rise breakfasts, let alone um, invited to to pon- pontificate how they can contribute. Could you help us understand the core work programmatically that you're involved in and how people could be involved? There are a wide variety of ways to be involved, and I think you know particularly. From our name, it makes it clear that women can and should be involved. But the reality is that 
this kind of change happens not just by women advocating for themselves, but by everybody across the industry, recognizing that the diverse workforce is critical and important. And so then reflecting on what they can do from wherever they are. And there's really something for everyone. And so whether that's you know, being involved in our mentoring program and doing that work either as a woman who wants to engage with other women or as a man who wants to get experience from other women or share his own experience in that space. But there's also, you know, tons of opportunities for sort of the job boards and hiring and things like that. But our leadership forum, I think, is a phenomenal in-person space where we get together in person and get to have these conversations with each other and across our entire network, really, both about the industry trends and what we see happening, but how these pieces about um, the diversity of the workforce tie in to the industry as a whole, as well as, you know, kind of what are some of the professional development pieces that we can and should be working on and what companies can and should be working on uh, to help change some of this work. Well, one of the things I understand is that the core way to become involved is by way of these chapters. You became uh, involved in uh, Women of Wind Industry through the Boston chapter. How do the chapters inform not only the direction, but also the leadership of RISE? Sure. So we, as I said, have about uh, over 30 chapters around the U.S. and Canada, and they are connected into our work, sharing the same mission and doing that work uh, at the local level. So it's a really exciting opportunity for anyone to be able to engage with their local community and connect in to programs that are going on on a regular basis there, whether it's um, tours of energy facilities or lunch and learns to talk about different industry trends, policy pieces new technology, things that are going on, uh, or even being involved in doing the work of sort of outreach to schools, local schools and K through 12 programs, things like that. And um, our chapter leaders are incredible set of volunteers all over who have gotten more and more engaged in RISE and care about our mission and are taking that work uh, to the local level and sharing it with folks everywhere. So um, it's really been an organic and exciting part of, of the work overall that uh, was pretty much the, you know, we were as an organization founded around the fellowship program to bring students and recent grads uh, to the trade show conferences. That was the Rudd Meyer Fellowship with the Wind Power Conference back in 2005. Um, but really, the very next thing was when that was hosted again in 2006. There were women who stood up at the lunch and said, you know, this work is really amazing. And I'm so excited to see all these women in the room. And I want to be able to see you all on a more regular basis. And I live in Portland, Oregon, or I live in San Diego. Will you be? Is it, If anyone's going to be there, come meet me over in this, you know, corner. And uh, our chapters really grew organically out of the interest of our, of our members across the country and allow them to sort of translate this mission and work to the local level in, in really exciting ways. Within the women of the renewable industries and sustainable energy, what's getting overlooked as a category that we really ought to be paying more attention to? Oh, that's a really great question. I mean, as an organization, I would say our core focus areas are 
wind, solar, and energy storage. Although I will say the energy storage industry as a whole won't necessarily declare itself as renewable. It, it sees itself as a tool and generation agnostic, but we see it as a really important tool for building the renewable energy economy and a clean energy future in general. We are seeing a growing presence of women in the mobility space, clean vehicles, electric vehicles, microgrids, energy efficiency, green buildings. There's so much going on and that's, I I think, incredibly exciting. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're still sort of core focused in the solar storage wind space because there's so much going on and, and critical conversations happening around diversity there, but also incredible things happening in a lot of other spaces too. Well, I'm sure uh, you're familiar with, with Lisa and Pinkerton and the Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. Yeah. yeah. This is a conversation that I've been having with her lately too, because women in renewable industries and sustainable energy, <laughs> women in clean tech and sustainability, <laughs> um, there's probably some overlap in the work that you guys are doing, but it's very... Um, collaborative, I would hope as well. But I definitely find uh, it interesting that the number of women I see not only transitioning to, but also taking leadership roles in mobility is stunning. It's really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also, it's all, I mean, it's, it really is fascinating. I think it's easy to see, especially with the growth of energy storage, how mobility broadly, that being the electrification of uh, cars and uh, scooters and, you know, the, and the like, will affect our energy usage and therefore people who are leading those companies will implicitly start to guide the 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 macro conversation in our industry around where and how renewable energy and storage are being utilized and how they interact and play nicely with what is likely to be the biggest disruptor of any industry of our generation so far which is that of electric vehicles what say ye? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe that was just me pontificating. I don't know if you do have anything you want to tag onto that. No, no. I mean, I think there is a ton of exciting stuff happening. And I personally am really excited that it sort of goes beyond just the pure vehicles play, even though I think electric vehicles and the tools of electric vehicles are incredible. And as you say, we are going to be a huge piece as there's, you know, as we understand the ancillary services and connecting them into the grid in new ways. And, you know, I went to a whole session at a conference last year on buses in New York City and the potential for storage solutions through school buses and things like that, which I I think is amazing. But also, you know, the way we can take on this conversation more broadly around mobility and think about how we are supporting individual communities in access to energy, to tools, to mobility in general, to get where they need to be, to go different places. And, you know, if you start to think about the conversations in terms of who owns cars or don't own cars and how we can change, you know, access to public transit, access to all the things that you need to get anywhere and how much that has implications for the rest of our lives and how much of an implication that has for climate as a whole. I think it's exciting to see our country, which has built so heavily on the automobile and the internal combustion engine, have an opportunity to really shake that up in some exciting ways. So I'm optimistic about it, but I think there's a long, hard slog of a lot of things to do. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, but the discussion does not have to end here. Kristen and I would love to hear your feedback. Would you mind 
posting your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter and tagging us. You could also find and comment on the LinkedIn or Twitter post that I've made for this episode. As always, you can find the Twitter handles and other resources and highlights from these discussions on the blog at mysuncast.com. Just click on the listen link to see the episodes page where you'll get show notes, social media and website links and other goodies covered in each and every episode. While you're there, I do hope that you'll check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Just click on the member button to learn how to gain access to uncut interviews and tribe exclusives that don't make it into the public Suncast feed. And of course, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be notified when the next episode is out or perhaps where I'll be next in the world. Quick shout out to the latest tribe member, Amy Tuck. Amy, thank you so much for joining the tribe. I look forward to collaborating with you in the very near future. I truly value your investment of time here today as well. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up here on Suncast. It's half the battle.